I thought what we do is we just start talking. Are you just gonna ask Sarah about it? We're gonna talk to Sarah, and then and then and then if people want to break in and stuff, we, you can you can break in, and then maybe at the end, maybe, maybe Joe and I will just leave, and other people can take over the show, and that's how the show transitions to new hosts. <laughs> this oh, is cool. this is the thing. It's kind of like Alps, where at the well, end of the year. Great. Hello, I'm Trevor Noah. it looks more impressive than what's it is. so great is that that means you will not be upset when I get up and leave. When do you plan to get up and leave? Whenever I damn well want to. <laughs> that is that is definitely true of Joe. <laughs> uh, because I've been trying to get Christian to use other people as co-hosts from time to time, and he refuses to do it. But this, yeah, that, that, I could I could basically force his hand. That's not the show. You could force the microphone. <laughs> Every time Joe's away, he says, you know, why don't you do the show with somebody else? I'm like, is this a hint? Are you trying to give me a hint? And that's just, that's not and the I show. And I say, no, I'm not trying to give you a hint. I'm making a statement in the English language. Why don't you do this with someone else while I am away? <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the hint, though, is about the long-term future that's of the show. It has nothing to do with that well, at that's, all. Uh, that, well, that's... That's for me to try to, you know, read the tea leaves. Yeah. You're, 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 you contain multitudes. Do we have, do we have any? Without a Yoko. This is just a spontaneous, <laughs> spontaneous oh destruction. Sarah's here today. She's our Yoko. No, I think Meredith. Oh, I'm not Yoko. the cock. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice way to put, put that on the guest, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Um, do we have fo- do we have any follow up? Do you want to do? We do have follow up. Right but we're not going to do it this week. We're going to do it next week. We're going to do it next week. Yeah, move got, on, dude. We got the we got the big. What's that? Oh, thousands, thousands. Um, we did, we're we're going to do follow up next week. Other than saying a great shout out to our neighbors to the north in Oslo, Norway, who are fantastic. Oh, you yeah. know who you are. You know who you are, listener. Yeah, you're awesome. Yes, he keep is. it special. Yeah, and now let's move on. The- uh, we also well, so we're going to talk about the uh, our raconteur Nick Georgiakopoulos, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos. See, no, I think I think Nicholas's email is is so fulsome, so <laughs> momentous that um, we need to devote some time, some some special time to that next. It week. involves an academic paper and a bunch of like whiskey stuff. Correct. Yeah, I, I don't have it in my in my head. Did, didn't yes. we get something else? Though? It is both learned and boozy. What? Yeah, we got we got another. We got one from uh, from listener Cameron. Yes, interesting yeah. suggestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anti cannons so and aspirational cannons. You're saying yeah, anti cannons. You're, you're, we're going to save all this for next week. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I, people are going to be disappointed. I mean, it, though we've just teased the hell out of it. Yeah. But, well, yeah, we're going to leave it till next week. I guess. All right. If if that's the way you want to do it, I do. Um, Hi, Sarah. This is a big week. This is, <laughs> Sarah's backed away from the microphone. This, this is a big week. It this is, is a big, big week because we have a live audience. We do. It's amazing. We got a live studio audience of, it, of literally ones of people. <laughs> <laughs> it's less impressive and, when you say it. That and, way. We're, and we're outside at, at the uh, Oral Argument World Headquarters. That's true. Um, we're on the veranda <laughs> at the Oral Argument yeah. World Headquarters. Yeah, in, in the outdoors, the birds are chirping. It's a beautiful night. We've just had some some local. Um, Local fair. It's evening, so we're having mature beverages. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, y- yes, yeah. We, we, Usually yeah, we, we record in the morning and we have coffee, which I don't consider a mature beverage. Mm. But beer, wine, these are mature beverages. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I feel like there's something else, though. Hmm. All right, we'll go on. We'll go on. Something else what? I don't know. It just feels like, it feels like we're not started yet. Feels like an engine that hasn't turned over, but that's probably because that's not my problem. We've not introduced all of our guests, and including Sarah. 
who's back again. Now, here's the thing. Sarah was here. So, so this is, we got Sarah Schindler with us today. Yeah. We're together and, again for the first time. And, and, and surprise mystery guests. Um, uh, we're going to let him talk? <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Okay. <laughs> and we're not going to be able to restrain him from getting to the mic. Well, that's a fair point. Do you think? Yeah. No, that, not in my experience. You don't, you, don't, you don't put him in the corner. I'm not even going to say his name. Yeah, no one puts baby in the corner. <laughs> you should mention that Sarah was once a member of the Film Actors Guild in, in California. Were you really? What? Screen Actors Guild. Screen Actors Guild. Yes. Oh, sorry, what? Uh, Close. Too many uh, bad animatronic movies. Yeah, if you said, <laughs> if you'd said SAG, you were I would a member of SAG-AFTRA? At least SAG. I don't remember if AFTRA was part of it. Okay. Yeah. Wow, very impressive. What? How did you get your yeah, uh, SAG card? I'm wordless. I got my SAG card from the show Freaks and Geeks. <gasps> You were on Freaks and Geeks? You were not on Freaks and Geeks. Wait, didn't we talk about this last time? We did not talk about it last time. We absolutely did not talk about it. I would remember it. I think this came up. This is amazing. I've heard this before. What character did you work with? uh, Did you have any screen time with? uh, Tell tell us about your screen time. (laughs) Well, I was walking in the hallway a lot behind the main characters. Um, Were you you a geek or a freak? I I was usually a hippie. No. So I guess that's kind of a free... No. Yeah, can you believe it? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in the cafeteria a lot, too. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, those hippies got to eat. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Did you... Now, now were you, you... So you were on set mm-hmm. a bunch, and you had craft catering or whatever that thing is, right? Yeah. Craft services. Craft, craft services. services. That's yeah. what, the craft table. Mm-hmm. And what is that all about? What, what do you have on there? So much food. Mm-hmm. A uh, lot of muffins and bagels, <laughs> primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Occasionally some fruit. Uh, that actually is, it doesn't sound very good. You got some schmear for the bagel? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh. Yeah. I was already vegan then, so. Uh, you didn't take any pictures or anything? So you were you of the free. craft services tables? <laughs> I probably did. Somewhere in my... <laughs> I would, although, actually, I don't know if we were allowed to have cameras on the Ooh, set. Oh, yeah, maybe And this not. was pre-smartphone days, so. Okay. So you couldn't sneak. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, you couldn't sneak it in. Huh. Or I didn't, even, probably even pre, you know, good camera on any phone day. Mm-hmm. Like I swear, this, I, it was barely good, but. like cell phones were just a, right. a new a new thing. There were some clamshell phones that had uh, cameras on them, right? In them, on Probably. them, with them, up them. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, but they would be they like were pretty bad. But they were like uh, daguerreotypes, I think is what you call the ones. <laughs> I think, or or, or the uh, you yeah. know the things where you cut a hole in the side of the building and you put it like a huge sheet in the back right. and it takes a picture. Yeah. You know, that yeah, it was the Motorola tin type. That was one of their one of the clamshell phones. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you have one of those, Sarah? Uh, at some point, yeah. At this point, it was like it was my first non-car phone, right? It was like mm. the first time cell phones you took them out of the car, right? But mm. they were very. This was '99, I think, 2000. So it was wow. very early models. Did you have a phone like a, in the car? In I a did. Bag oh or, yeah. yeah, I grew up. Of yes. course you did. Of course I did. Where did you grow up? I don't know. Los Angeles. Well, when I was younger, I lived in Los yeah, Angeles. Of course, I lived I in Alpharetta, it. Georgia. Ah, suburban it's the same. Atlanta. That's the same. That's LA. <laughs> Very similar. It's the LA of the East. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. So, how did you get? How did you get dialed into Freaks and Geeks? Oh, uh, I when I moved to LA, I started sending out my stuff, and I wound mm. up doing a lot of background extra work. It was okay. very easy. It's actually disturbingly easy like pretty much anyone could have gotten on yeah but it's that first step that you just said i sent out my stuff like people are gonna be like what do you do how do you do that i it's likely changed very much Mm -hmm. in the ensuing 15 Mm -hmm. years but uh no i think you just sent your headshot to this like extra company and you say i want to be an extra on tv shows and then whatever how depending how old you were and what you looked like they would say oh you can be on this show today 
and Freaks and Geeks had a habit of bringing back the same extras. Uh, so I was know, on a lot a of the... And right, right. They want there. some consistency. So right. I was on a lot of the episodes of that. And you have this great look. And it's a, you look both indispensable and yet somehow extra. <laughs> so uh, I think that's awesome for you. That was a really great... That was a great niche. I mean, honestly, that was just an awesome niche. Do you ever yeah. take a headshot, Joe? Do, have I? Do yeah. I have a headshot of me? No, yeah. of course not. We should periscope this. We, we should we should pair that that's like no, i don't want to if she's got a speaking part in this we don't we can't pay for that you don't you're not still a member are you so i'm sorry, uh, I'm sure it's lapsed okay i, good. I hope so yeah. this is some kind of union violation that's right so we're, we're <laughs> in a sure. rates problem here yeah a serious problem you can't work for free you can't give this stuff away mm-hmm. not no. if you're in that union mm-hmm. right i don't think so um we need to clear so, this up so there's a straight line from that to law professordom right definitely <laughs> I do remember when I was interviewing uh, for law firm jobs, almost everyone would look at my resume and see the, you know, the acting and screen actual and they say, oh, of course you want to be a litigator. That makes so much sense. Courtrooms. And I like did not want to be a litigator at all. So that was always one of the lines I had in my uh, in my interviews. Like, no, I have no interest in litigation. I want to do regulatory work. And, you know, <laughs> right. and they were like, oh. I want to be a courtroom extra. Yeah. <laughs> I'll sit in the back. Well, should we should we talk about this piece? Sure. So, so first of all, Sarah piece Schindler was here, I think, in the early days of oral argument. Back that's when that's true, you were I one think, of our first guests. I think that's back when we distributed the show on the wax cylinders. Yes, early, in the early days, yes. you know, back when we had on the, the special, pony the funny hats, and we had the stopwatches and stuff. Yeah, and um, and, and your law school like tweeted. I think your law school got us a lot of new listeners. Oh, excellent! Because they they put it on their page. They said, "Hey, listen to this," and um, and and people people kept people kept up with us after yeah. that. I think. Because any place, any show that's good enough for Sarah, they think is like it's good enough for them. And I'm a Maina. <laughs> I'm from Maine originally. Yeah, that's true. So that was they were helping with that as well. Right. That's true. And and your law school has a new dean. We do. She officially starts, I think, in July. But Danielle Conway. Right. I'm sure she's fantastic. I just I just want to drop a marker here. I was all for uh, Dean Maine. <laughs> yes. <There's> Professor Maine, <laughs> who right. is the we head of the search committee. Professor Maine. Yes. Yeah. Dean Maine, dean of Maine, would be awesome. But. <laughs> I guess that's not the best way of choosing a dean. It's based on <laughs> how their name sounds after dean and what their law school is. But, you know. It would be pretty great. Jeff, yeah. if you're listening, keep it in mind for the future. I, he had my vote. <laughs> it turns out it didn't matter, though. Um, yeah, so, so the last time you we were on, I think we, we talked about all kinds of stuff, like pop-up restaurants, and we talked about uh, backyard chickens and all kinds of crazy stuff. And what is she doing? Yeah, we got Darcy here. He's pawing around at people. Yeah. yeah. I think your brother got her accustomed to eating person food. He did. Should we talk about this article? Sure. You, I mean, what do you want to talk about? I don't care. We could just keep going. We could just freewheel this whole thing and just keep going like we're going and be fine with me. But um, what, what do you think? So we got. So you, you published this article about architectural exclusion. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the idea is, look. So here's. Let me. Can I summarize? Please. In like, yeah. In like I'd love two, to hear in like, uh, one sentence. Yeah. Okay. So um, if you want to pass a law saying that people can't go into uh, a particular place, that turns out to be really hard, semicolon. But if you want to build a huge wall, that's perfectly okay. And it does the same thing. Yeah. That's, that a, be- that's a pretty good description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so um, okay. Well, thanks for coming on. <laughs> 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 and it only took 91 pages for me to say that. Right. Christian got it out. And scene. No, mm-hmm. um... <laughs> no, but this this is a, like this is true, right? I mean, this is, and 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 you start the article by talking about like how people have observed this with uh, like Larry Lessig and others in the context of of uh, of cyberspace. You know, 
hate this word, but you know, you know, but uh, but not real space, right? And your article did is that how you got inspired to write this? As you saw that stuff, or were you thinking about these ideas by looking at particular problems? Hmm. So. I think a few things. So I had been reading a lot of, of Larry Lessig's work um, in the context, a, a lot of, uh, I, I was doing a lot of reading about norms, actually, and sort of, you know, constraints other than law. And so I was focused a lot on norms. And um, and so he's written about how, you know, we're not constrained in our behavior or regulated only by laws, but also by norms, markets, and architecture. Uh, and so I think the architecture piece was always kind of confusing to me at first. I was like, huh, what does that mean? And I, you know, when you look into it a lot, it's it's been written a lot about in the cyber space or you know ip well it's um, almost a metaphor rather than a literal statement exactly so but you're you're saying it's actually a literal issue too exactly so taking it out of the metaphor realm and back into the real world from when from where it came right so the reason he talks about architecture as regulation in in the terms of of cyberspace and code is because he recognizes that things like you know railroad tracks divide communities walls can block you from accessing certain places um, and so, and not only does it have this effect, but as you write, you write about Robert Moses doing this intentionally and other communities doing this intentionally where like, you know, we know we can't, uh, uh, after the early 20th century, we, we no longer can just have a zone saying basically the black people over here, white people over there. Right. Mm-hmm. But we can build like freeways and we can build, uh, low bridges and we can do other things that make it impossible for people to get from one place to another. And so they basically stay where we want them to stay. Right. right exactly. But we both as potential plaintiffs and also legislators, uh, don't think of those things, those physical features of the environment, uh, the same way that we think about laws that exclude. And so that's sort of the, the, the thesis or the focus of the paper is, is why do we think of them differently? You know, are, should we be treating uh, infrastructural decisions, architectural decisions differently from uh, legal decisions? I've actually had this uh, in, the, in the code setting. I've actually had some experience with it because I remember when I, um, I, I took a, I was the president of our law review and there were some things I wanted to change, right? And, and one thing was I wanted people to work in groups. I wanted various kind of like different things to happen, which you might think, well, we're going to have to have a meeting and talk to the board and, and, and people are going to have agree- disagreements about how we do this and how we do that. And, but at the same time, we needed like there was no groupware website. And, um, and so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to build a website, which includes like the, the structure that I want will be embedded in the website. And it wasn't intent. I wasn't trying to evade necessarily, but I knew it would have the effect of, cause the website was going to be so helpful to everything we did. Cause it would have online submissions. It would have, you know, work sharing all this stuff that people would want to use it. And I'm going to design it for the way I want the law review to work. And, uh, so that architecture, you know, basically put in place the system of, instead of like people working on their own and getting like edits in boxes and things, instead there were, teams of editors working together and that was in the site and and i didn't feel like there was anything illegitimate about that you know it clearly didn't give everybody the same voice and whether we should move in that direction as it would have had i not done that um so i hate saying it was like intentionally like evading anything but um but that's the kind of thing that you're talking about right people making choices for maybe more than one reason like maybe that you mentioned the the freeway in nashville i-40 right which they put through uh uh, a low-income neighborhood, and and it's really hard to pin down like why people have done that, and and with anti-discrimination laws, you point out like it it becomes very important for figuring out whether there's legal liability, uh, what the reasons of the actor were, right? That that anti-discrimination law, instead of just looking at effects, and at least in certain, has focused on reasons. Um, how do we? I don't know. What, I've said a lot of stuff, so I don't know how you want to deal with it, but. Uh, mm-hmm. 
like how do we you got to the end of the article i'm still wondering like what you thought you know what i mean like is there something illegitimate about what i did or what these communities did or does it depend on what their actual reasons were like, yeah so, you- so that's actually a great question right so so one of the things i encountered in in my research was that some of these architectural decisions seem to actually be done with the intent to exclude right so there's a lot of at least anecdotal evidence around robert moses's decisions to create these low bridges that that was done to intentionally make them so low that buses couldn't pass under them so that people who rode the buses primarily poor people people of color could not access the beach, the nice public beach and park at the end of, of, uh, of the parkways. Um, there are other examples where it's possible that the intent really was, um, you know, planners looking at efficiency, thinking about how do we get people from one part of the city to the other part the most quickly, and we're going to put a highway and it's going to go here, and maybe their primary intent really was efficiency. And there's, um, Nicholas Blomley has written about this in the context, he calls it traffic logic, Right. Yeah. Uh, this idea that that planners and, and engineers often are focused on, um, you know, moving people efficiently as opposed to inclusiveness or um, equal access. And uh, but again, it, it's hard, especially in the context of land use or in, in transportation decisions to get at what the true intent is. Right. Because there's often layered intent. Right. Maybe it is partially about efficiency, but maybe it's also about clearing blight. Um, or alleviating, you know, problems that people saw in the slums. And, and maybe it's about and, where it's cheapest to pay just compensation. Sure. When you, yeah. Sure. All of these things. Mm. So. Yeah. What do you think, Joe? It's fascinating. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what the, what it's, I'm not allowed to say it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah um, I, I expect you to, I, look, I've never known you not to have a strong opinion about anything. Well, I have so. a very strong opinion about that, that you just said. But, really? And what is your opinion? <laughs> what What is your opinion about that? That's too that? meta. Um, mm, yeah. The uh, the the disparate impact um, piece of it is uh, is I think fascinating because then you have to decide. Okay, assume there are a, a mixture of motives. Frequently, uh, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Uh, but you know what are we going to do about it? And uh, if you if you follow a disparate impact logic, the importance of making sure that we don't engage in these exclusionary behaviors is sufficiently great that it it outweighs well i don't care what all your motives were what matters is how it affects people's effect. lives and mm-hmm. if the lived lives of these people are detrimentally affected in this way then you know we need higher bridges period i mean it's you don't need to debate your intentionality um and do you see us being able to to take that kind of approach? I mean, not based on our current jurisprudence, right? I think that's part of the problem. So in the paper, I talk about the fact that I think there are two problems here. So I guess, so that's sort of the second one I say is that, well, okay, so so I think the first problem is a lot of us don't recognize architecture as a form of regulation. So I think that's the first step, is getting people to see bridges not just as bridges, but as potential tools of exclusion or inclusion. Um, once we get past that hurdle, to the extent we do recognize these things as regulation, I think we still come up against the problem of our current constitutional jurisprudence um, because we do care about um, intent. And so until we can move past that, I don't know if there's... So we could statutorily, I guess, yeah. statutorily, we could move to a disparate impact, at least right now. Right. Uh, although there are some people who argue that doctrinally, the court's been backing itself into a corner where it's going to soon have to say that even disparate impact statutorily is unconstitutional because it 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 fails to grapple with the que- the, int- the question of intent 
Well, here's um, so the problem is that like everything has an effect. Like everything anybody does anytime has an effect, right? And figuring out those effects and the you know the the tendrils of causation that come out from any choice can be really really hard, right? And so to put um, and so the argument would be to put judges in charge of deciding ex post whether those effects are too bad is to put them in too much of a legislative role, right? And and so as a structural matter, you want you know you don't want judges to second guess policy making too often, right? Even if you think it's for good reasons, because used for other reasons as well um and so you need some switch that tells them when to engage in that kind of uh ex post scrutiny and 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 when not to and 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 as i read the paper sarah you just say you don't you don't think that that's promising uh that you prefer the legislative solution you allude to exactly what i thought when i was reading through the paper the nepa and the sequa stuff right mm -hmm. what's what's strange about that we're nowhere near asking judges to second guess too much so I don't understand why we need to decide that retail. I think we, we already know wholesale, it, this is not a serious issue. The, the architecture cases may raise a different kind of issue in that regard, though. If we, if we start to ask, are the effects of an architectural decision or a traffic pattern decision or a highway, uh, if we know that the intent was not bad, right? And, and the question is, like, we've got a bunch of dueling experts on whether the effects are exclusionary mildly exclusionary or inclusive or not right then that's kind of a lot of like ex post stuff to deal with okay right? those are hard cases right so yeah. but but surely there are going to be easy cases i mean I, to me the other the the other analogy here is is or the other the other process is you know buchanan against you you and i have been around this yeah, yeah several yeah, yeah. times but but you know buchanan against worley says sort of explicit racial zoning ordinances are unconstitutional. Shelley against Kramer says, you can't do by contract what we won't let you do by statute. Mm -hmm. And this is a similar sort of thing, right? We won't let you do by architecture what we also say you can't do by statute, by a zoning ordinance, right? So would, um, you, would you have that? And Sarah, you jump in too, but would, would you say that if, uh, if we knew for sure that there was no racially discriminatory intent? Would you say that because you observe an effect that you would overturn the decision? Uh, and if the answer is, well, it kind of depends on like whether they worked hard enough to know whether there'd be an effect and how big the effect is, then maybe the Environmental Policy Act type approach the environmental, is the right one, right? Because you require them in advance to gather that kind of information to include in the decision-making. We can talk about that more later, but like just for now, like would you say what you're saying if – in a, in a case where you knew for sure that they had no racially discriminatory intent at all? Well, you, you kind of loaded the dice there. I mean, no, for sure. So yeah. one, one thing that a really, uh, that a pronounced um, racial effect would suggest to me is that they're not actually telling the truth about their intention. Um, well, that, but, that's but, the purpose of, yeah, go ahead. But, but, but you said, if you knew for sure. So I'll right. assume in your, I won't fight the hypo. I'll say, fine, I know for <laughs> sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, why not? I mean, if there's an alternative, to me, the, the more interesting question is, what are the alternatives? And if there are, are, if there are practical alternatives that don't have the same sort of exclusionary effect, why not insist on them? Regardless of your intent. 
I mean, what, what, because we're trying to achieve a certain social good, which is not creating caste systems, either intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, no, and, and right. And then I guess the question comes in. So what if it's vastly more expensive to do it the other way? You know, how do we balance? Where, where do we balance or how, mm-hmm. how highly do we balance inclusion? Um, in public spaces. And I, going off, Joe, another thing you were saying, you know, I think you talked about um, racial zoning, and racially restrictive covenants and how, you know, now we used to be able to do these things legally. Now we can't. But I think an interesting counterpoint is exclusionary zoning. Right. So we've moved away from racial zoning, but you all the time see exclusionary zoning, right, where we say, um, well, we're going to zone this neighborhood, you know, one house per acre or one house per five acres. Right. Well, who can afford to live there? wealthy people. It's going to be primarily white people in many cases. Uh, Most of the courts that have looked at that say that's okay, right? Again, going back to the intent issues. So in some ways, when I think about architectural exclusion, I think it's more akin to exclusionary zoning. Um, And if if courts are even looking at that, which is, you know, again, it's zoning, it's a form of of legal regulation that the courts are familiar with. And even if that is not being struck down um, on federal constitutional grounds by courts like what are the odds that architectural exclusions, which is <laughs> right. not, it's not even law, right? It's right. It doesn't seem like government action. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I think the contribution of the piece is to see that a, a choice about building is a choice that, about how you want to affect behavior mm-hmm. and that people ought to take that to, into account. What I found like myself really agreeing with was, was the suggestion that it's more like the environmental quality and, and, and policy acts, right? That the problem is that, uh, so let's suppose that we know that no one intends racially to discriminate, right? Let's, let's suppose we knew that. And, and I'm all for revisiting these Supreme Court decisions where, uh, um, uh, you know, where Justice Marshall is, uh, is saying you're not looking closely enough at whether this is really racist. And there's some of these statements that you point out in these cases are just, I hadn't read these cases mm. before and they're just like remarkable Memphis, for, for like, yeah, the, the insensitivity yeah. to, you know, based on the things that they said, you know, it, it's, just stone cold racist but but let's suppose we knew for sure it wasn't that right well we've had experience with this in the environmental context where in the you know when we had rivers on fire in the 50s and 60s lots of decisions were being made without regard to the environmental effects it's not that anybody intentionally wanted to destroy the environment Mm -hmm. it's just that decisions are complicated and environmental effects are very complicated downstream effects so if you build a new plant or you do a new thing like figuring out like what the environmental effects of that it's really hard to do because of you know things are difficult (laughs) the physical world is difficult and and so what the national environmental policy act says was you know before you do this thing which is going to have if you do a quick assessment if it's going to have a major effect you need to do a detailed study it doesn't have to affect your decision although some states say that it should affect your decision but at least at the federal level it doesn't have to affect your decision uh so it says look if 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 we think that there's going to be some major effect you need to do a study and the reason you need to do a study is because you can't possibly make an intelligent decision until you know all of these things. And these are big. And how do we know they're big? Because we've had all these problems uh, with the uh, downstream envi- environmental effects of, uh, uh, of decisions that weren't properly counted in advance. And Could, so you, there yes. are two reds and one white. This is very important information. <laughs> I'm not even going to edit this out. This is all going to stay. <laughs> Listeners, there are two reds. There's one white. So that suggests that if we are not in a situation where we think that there is like evil in people's hearts, like there's nobody who wants to go and strangle a baby seal or anything, right? That, uh, uh, but, uh, Paul, you do? I just hit him over the head. <laughs> <laughs> different strokes for different folks, as they say. Uh, I think it's always a good assumption that there is evil in people's hearts. 
I'm, oh, oh it's always uh, see. I, so that's the podcast starts with Sarah's article and it goes to the nature of good and evil <laughs> and the ultimate. Um, <laughs> it feels like we've been there on the show before, though. Um, uh, so, so anyway, you got to do this study, and so you have to know. You can't make a rational decision without knowing, right? Right. And the so reason why not the do law a social impact study <laughs> right. instead of an environmental impact study, do a social impact study and find out what the effects. And some be. states require this, you know. Uh, um, uh, I think California does, doesn't it? it requires social impact calculations, Sarah? CEQA? Well, CEQA, requ- I think, to some extent, not to the extent we're talking about here. There's some no, things no, you no, have no, to no. look right. at, socioeconomic impacts in some situations. Some cultural impacts, yeah. you have to look at time. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Jesse Alley chiming in. Yeah. <laughs> for, first appearance. Yes. <laughs> first appearance. We're, we're going to get you in front of the microphone in a minute. <laughs> um, we might have to pour more wine, though. To get every, you know, everybody wants we'll to. We'll have to wait until there's only one. <laughs> um, so that's a possible tool, right, for – so I guess part, part of what I'm thinking about is, is that just the answer? Um, and if so, is that not – will there not be like 20 other articles that legal academics write about unintended effects of, regu- of regulation and decisions – in various dimensions, not just racial or otherwise, right? Uh, will there be a bunch of those? And, and, and they'll all say, well, we need this new report, and they'll have all the problems that, and they do have problems that inv- environmental impact statements have, right? They have salutary effects, but they certainly have a lot of deleterious effects as well. Yeah. You could be, Paul yeah. doesn't have to sit there. Yeah, Paul, yeah, yeah, Paul just, left, just pull up a right? chair. Paul left. No, well, <laughs> did he leave? So, no, I'm saying he <laughs> no, but I, yes, I agree. And that, I think that is a concern. It's, it sounds great when it's just these two. Let's look at, you know, the yeah. exclusionary impacts and the, and the environmental impacts. But, right, there's a lot more out there. Jesse? Well, we just talked about this today because I had um, the. Uh, the mic's fine. The mic's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have I'll the fortune do of being, uh, doing one of these author meets reader sessions yeah. today, right? So you do. Um, and it was Robin, uh, Robin Malloy just wrote this book about uh, land use and disability law. Mm. And, and he is saying very similar things now about disability. So as you guys were talking, it made me think, okay, well, now is disability another factor? So it, when you said, um, what did you say? You said, oh, you know, once we figure out that that bridge is bad, the bridge has got to be gone. Okay. But what if it's now we figure out that people who have some types of disability don't have access to things? Now we're talking about much more kind of pervasive changes that would have to happen to, to architecture than just if we're thinking about kind of race and, and, and class issues. So I do think to some extent we build upon, we can make that list longer and longer of what are the things we need to take into account. And what is the, and ultimately, I guess what I'm, what I, I, I see a practical challenge. But Absolutely. I don't hear a conceptual problem. Yes, I right. think that's that's over well, and the, over again what I hear too. Yeah, with disability, like so the I mean the ADA, and you you talk about this in the article, Sarah, right? So the ADA responds to the unthinking exclusion of the disabled, right? Uh, and the thinking of exclusion of this, but but the the main like uh, I, I guess um, the harder step with the ADA, the more radical step is to combat the unthinking exclusion of the, of the disabled and requiring expenditures to include them, right? Even though it would be, yeah. in some sense, economically rational not to not to include them. Um, and and but it also proceeds from the idea that like it's not enough that this one building, if you follow the disabled person around during the day, like one or two barriers can like can ruin the whole day, right? It makes it impossible to get around. So, like, everything has to be inclusive, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I, that is that the same here? You know what I mean? I mean, 
I don't know. I, the, the, the ADA is a statute which says we need access everywhere, right? And maybe you need that because there's no inclusion until everything is accessible. Or I think you're looking at something which is more like um, incremental in a way. Like let's look at things as they happen and assess them for their exclusionary effects. Mm-hmm. And you talk about just race, and, but I don't think your argument is limited to race, right? No, like, no, definitely not. Um, so I, and I think there's two things. So and also in the paper, I talk about sort of the, the legacy effects, right? So a lot of our built environment was created at a time when those, you know, the legal um, exclusion that we were talking about was permissible. And so even though we've struck down those laws, we still have the sort of physical remnants of those laws in place. Uh, and so I think there's, there's sort of two things. So one question is, how do we address the legacy effects that are still with us, these sort of enduring effects of architecture? Because part of the problem with architecture and with infrastructure is it is enduring, right? We build these bridges and they last. Uh, a long time. And now we're seeing a lot of that infrastructure starting to crumble, which I think is a great opportunity for us to incorporate these ideas into our rebuilding of some of that crumbling infrastructure. Um, But then the other side is, is Christian, as you're saying, sort of as we go forward, I think it's much easier there to talk about, all right, let's be, let's be more inclusionary to the greatest extent possible in our new construction. Um, but what does that mean for our existing environment? And this also goes to the disability point. Um, You know, there's ostensibly requirements to, to rehab existing buildings, but from my understanding, that doesn't actually happen as much as the ADA says. I it say, I love everything. I love everything that you said except for one thing. Uh huh. And I think America should play like a national drinking game. Oh boy! Where every time someone says infrastructure and modifies it with the word crumbling, <laughs> everybody has to drink. Crumbling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Our You've heard this. You know this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially politicians. I'll take it from Sarah because I'll. <laughs> Sarah can say anything, and she will still be fantastic in my eyes. Agreed. Mm. Agreed. But when a politician Aww. says crumbling infrastructure, especially one who wants to do absolutely nothing to fix the crumbling infrastructure, <laughs> I do get a little bit punchy. Mm. Like you get the stabby, Joe. So what yeah. do you call the, yeah. the bridges that are going to fall down soon? Uh, probably just bridges that are going to fall down soon. Okay. Yeah. okay. Fall, <laughs> falling bridges. Oh, falling. Falling, <laughs> a little bit falling. Yeah. Le- leaves are crumbling to the cookies. Okay. <laughs> Justin, do you want to get in here? Uh, well, I was going to make the point that you made about the yeah, get, Americans get, yeah. with Disability Act, which, I mean, the whole point of the Americans with Disabilities Act is to consider our architecture as it's being built and the architecture that we have in terms of access. And I'm not an expert on that, but I think it's interesting that the Fair Housing Act hasn't come up since that's obviously yeah. also the purpose of the Fair Housing Act and the requirement of affirmatively furthering fair housing. So then I think the question is maybe we could bring it a little bit back to that and think about are there ways that the Fair Housing Act could be improved to get at some of this more. Is that, is that, too, piece, is that too piecemeal uh, piecemeal for you? What do you mean? I mean, just going statute by statute. I mean, oh, oh, right. Do we need something bigger? Do you need the national, you know, uh, do you need the National Infrastructure Inclusion Act <laughs> that, that has like an, an inclusion impact statement or something? Is that... I mean, right, it would be easier if the Supreme Court or, or you know, like changed its conceptions and requirements of our sort of equal protection jurisprudence. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that, that's, but the easier that's, that's the easier route. Yeah. You mean like overturn Washington v. Davis? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so there's a famous case, Washington v. Davis, that all the law students know that, you know, if you uh, in order to show a violation of the equal protection clause, you have to show intentional discrimination. Right. It's not enough that uh, that's not true of all of our um, civil rights statutes, many of which do recognize what we've been calling disparate impact causes of action, but that's not, uh, doesn't show any protection clause violation. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? 
I mean, right, that would that would address the need for all these different piecemeal statues. I'm, g- I'm going to get you on record. Do you favor, see, this is at, <laughs> at, 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 at a hearing one day, they're going to listen to the show, because, you know, all the, all, the, all the staffers listen to our show. Right. Uh, w- do you want to overturn Washington v. Davis? <laughs> yes, <laughs> sure. You seem hesitant. Yeah, no, for, especially as a land use scholar, right? I mean, this is like one of the, the hardest parts in, in the land use context. It's like... You'll never make it through your confirmation hearing, so... <laughs> So can we have the list of what else do you want to overturn while we're at it? <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing. You, you Everything's will, perfect. You love citizens. Alvin versus Reno. <laughs> yes, Ashcroft. Ashcroft is Ashcroft by that time. Yeah, would you overturn Elder versus Ashcroft, the Copyright Extension Act? I don't know enough to speak to that. The answer is yes. The answer yes. is yes. yes. Uh, Just um, imagine you're feeling frisky with the with the Constitution. It's overturn at all, right? I think so long as you say Brown v. Board is good with you. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to get too bad. Okay. You, you would uphold that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, Paul, do you want to get in here? Sure. Yeah, get, you got you to gotta shift the mic over or something. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd wait till I had something to say. Oh, 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 oh yeah, if you've got nothing to say, then... <laughs> I, in my experience, you, you never have nothing to say, but, you know... Yeah, go, Justin, come back in. You want to say something. Well, just in thinking about... I mean, the, the obvious difference with the Fair Housing Act is that this is talking not necessarily only about dwelling units, but about neighborhoods, about infrastructure. And um, it just it makes me think of South Africa, that there are a lot of parallels in the sense that the South African landscape was structured around apartheid and white supremacy. And in many ways, the U.S. landscape was structured around the same thing. In South Africa, they've done extensive work on land reform, on the structure, reforming the structure of local governments to address the jurisdictional issues and the wealth disparities. Um, so I guess if we want to really start thinking about undoing the legacy of white supremacy, we have to start thinking about this on a, on a larger structural level, an architectural level, and, and more. You know what that makes me, you know, that makes me think about um, um, uh, being in law school and hearing, uh, I, I remember I was in Akhil Amar's Bill of Rights class. Uh, mm. as a, at, and I just remember seeing the Constitution, and whether you agree or not, but seeing the Constitution in a new way when you, when you kind of relive through the history of that and see how many of the provisions are basically compromises over preserving the slavery balance, right? And, and the Constitution as a document is like structured in, in, in parts, not in whole, but to preserve, you know, the pre-Civil War amendments, uh, to, to preserve that structure, you know, the structure of the Senate, everything else, all yeah. these provisions you can, you look, you see in a new way when you are, when you put yourself back into that, you know, that time of that slavery, the slavery compromise. And, and so it, it helps you to see this thing that you've just taken for granted as being just part of life and part of being an American as something which has a history that you want to do something about. And what you just said, like, that's like the physical embodiment of that, right? You can, you go, you drive through a city like Nashville, like you talk about, or any other city, and, and you see these things, you see the highways, the where the bridges are, and you just kind of, well, this is the this is the way it is. This is the way it's developed. Somebody, but when you see it as the legacy of this history, um, I think that's a really powerful insight. I mean, I think it's a really powerful way to, to see the physical, our physical geography as a reflection of a past, parts of which we're proud of and parts of which we are not at all proud of. And like, there's some obligation to the extent that, that 
that uh, a bridge is like a living legacy of racism, mm-hmm. intentional racism, to the extent to rip that out, root and branch, just like it's our obligation to rip out, root and branch the parts of our constitution that were racist, or the parts of our, you know, that Jim Crow was ripped out by the Civil War amendments, right? So, right, and we've done that, yeah. yeah, definitely, and you know, with um, racially restrictive covenants, for example, that's the our, our sort of goal is to remove them, you know, like cross them out of the records, put big cover sheets that says this is, you know, no longer applicable. Um, but right, we still have these walls, you know, physical walls that divide um, black and white neighborhoods that were put up to divide those neighborhoods. Well, yeah, and mention this because you, you, uh, one of the more resting, and I didn't know anything about this, and we lived in New Haven for six mm-hmm. years in the early 2000s, is that there was an actual like fence around the public housing project, uh, which made it so that if you wanted to get from that public housing project, which was close to the border with Hamden in New Haven, which is an mm-hmm. outlying town, you had to like go back into New Haven and go around. It was like, Basically, it was a. I'm just thinking of Escape from New York or something like that, where they, you know, they put up this huge barbed wire fence to to keep out public housing people from Hamden. Yeah, and in a lot of cities, they they did it with roads too, right? So they created a lot of dead end streets and put uh, public housing in these sort of enclaves disconnected from the rest of the city. And again, a lot of this is intentional, right? It's intentionally to cut these these communities off from interaction with the rest of the city. Uh, yeah, and so again, that's not uncommon. And to bring this back to, not to bring up South Africa all the time, but I mean, I think that this architecture was, I mean, it shares a very clear connection in South Africa. The townships in South Africa were explicitly designed with one road that went in so that the military or in in the U.S. case, the police could easily block off entrance and exits. And I lived in a township for a little while and was commuting to a school that was, as the crow flies, very close, but as you just described, New Haven was very distant because you couldn't go directly there. You had to go all the way downtown and back out again because the idea was to keep these two areas visually separate, physically separate, and make the connection difficult. The other thing I was going to say is that this topic is particularly relevant this week um, with all that's happened in Baltimore um, and the uprising in Baltimore. I was I've been reading some of the state decisions about the racial zoning ordinances that came before Buchanan v. Worley. And the first one was passed in the city of Baltimore in 19 December of 1910. And it actually what precipitated it was a lawyer, as far as I know, from from what I've read, um, an African-American lawyer who was a Yale Law School graduate who moved about 10 blocks uh, from one side of Druid Hill Avenue to the other side of Druid Hill Avenue in Baltimore to a neighborhood that was from a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American the one that was predominantly white, and that led the neighbors in this white neighborhood to come up with this ordinance. And it's interesting because it's the exact same area where the uprising started earlier this week, right around where the Mondawmin uh, Mall is, is right where Druid Hill Avenue is. And wow. so I think you see this this history of um, how white supremacy has structured our landscape in the events of today, very very clearly. Mm-hmm. And don't you have a don't you have a quote from the Baltimore mayor in your article? It's is it Baltimore? I know there's one mayor who had this. You know, we see the effects of racism, but it, 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 um, but you have a quote which is like, you know, it, it's coldly racist. It feel you know, is that is it Baltimore? I think so. I it, you probably read it more recently than I. I have, but yeah, because I did about an hour. Ago, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when the when the Baltimore when Baltimore passed this, the mayor was seen as very progressive, social justice oriented mayor, and he fully supported this ordinance as a way of avoiding conflict and keeping people separate and comfortable. I'm wondering if there's some way you can leverage the architect, the existing architecture, um, 
it's a lot harder to tear down the bridges and the, uh, and the highways than it is to you know put your next economic development project on the other side, right, where where the people who uh, have been cut off are. And I'm not, you know, does the solution have to be some some national act where we file a lot of paperwork and decide how high the bridges are going to be, wasting a lot of money, which could be directly invested in communities, which would be able to capture the value of that investment precisely because of the existing uh, difficulties in uh, traveling from one side to the other. Maybe. I mean, again, it's like, you know, going back to what Justin's saying, you know, so much of this is ingrained in our existing landscape that even if we invest a lot of money in a certain area, I mean, there's there's no guarantee that that's going to fix anything. And if it does, it might just lead to gentrification and then forcing those people out of the neighborhoods where they've been for a long time. So, yeah, what makes it hard is, that, and you mentioned this in the article, too, is that um, with many decisions in the past that we think of as evil or wrong, like they've happened. They may have lingering effects. But the main thing is that we don't make those same choices again today. Right. And the built environment is one in which these, you know, like like you say in South Africa, like the, the effects perdure, right? They they go on and on. Um, <clears throat> and so there has to be a new affirmative choice to rip them out. Right. right? Um, and an ongoing commitment not to replicate them through un, kind of unthinking exclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are two very different projects, aren't they? I mean, yes. And, and the environmental impact statement model is the one about not making these mistakes in the future. In the future, what right. would you do about ripping stuff out root and branch from the past? Right. So this is this is the problem that that we were talking about with the disability context yeah. too. I mean, where do we start? Where do we get the funding? Um, and that's why I think the uh, the folly bridges, you know, as things need to be replaced, that's a good opportunity to incorporate these ideas. But to the extent something, you know, so. Uh, right to the extent something's recently been modernized, I think it's going to be a lot harder to find funding. Um, if we're talking about in the real world, right? So hypothetically, we have all the money we need. We target the worst offenders, um, but in the real world, where does that money come from? Who's making these decisions? Uh, yeah, but you, you need the yeah. So you need the money, but it's also a hard decision to make because you know new infrastructure usually costs a lot of money and, and dis- it's like and disturbs the city or, or the community right, for a you know, long time, right? If we think about the when big digs, like how long quo, it takes. Exactly, but when you think of the status quo. Right. Um, like nothing is more status quo than a bridge that's been there forever or a road mm-hmm. or a building. I mean, these are things which represent almost they are the physical embodiments of the status quo. There's right? also a, a sort of a cultural or notional layer on top of the the actual physical architecture. Um, you know, so there'll be <laughs> so we've got um, we've got lots of monuments and statues to uh, Confederate generals and schools named after them and the Edmund Pettus Bridge and, like, why isn't it the John Lewis Bridge? Um, so these sorts of issues and as soon, and, and any effort to, on a, on a broad scale, address the, the sort of um, uh, public valorization architecture, right, well, there will, I, I'm sure there would quickly be an organization called, you know, the Sons of Confederate Architects, and it, they would oppose the obliteration of this culture. You, you and, think now? Hmm? You, you think now there would be? Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and so... I, I, maybe we should test that. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually very, I'm actually quite pessimistic about the idea that we would actually address any of these issues yeah. Cult- <laughs> as a, as a, as a current sort of, yeah, cultural and, and political matter. Um, 
I think because I think the, the the devotion of a significant portion of the population to their their, their laundered version of this stuff in their own mind is very fierce. They're very attached to it and would not want to would view it as a cultural attack uh, and a and a, a a a sort of surrender, a cultural surrender to say, well, that's a good reason to change a bridge or change a highway or. I just I'm more optimistic about right now. I just feel like something is happening right now, <clears throat> right now, which is different. You know, I, I, we're roughly the same age. You know, when I was in high school, you, I, I would have expected exactly the same reaction that you're mentioning, even in college. Um, but now, you know, now that we're in our 60s and our 70s. <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> um, well, I hope you're right. I hope I'm wrong. I'm not happy about what I think. It's what I think, though. There's no reason not to be optimistic about the possibility of moving the bridge or the highway, but there's kind of an assumption that uh, it's almost a free market assumption that, well, if we can just remove the impediments and have a free flow of people, then things will start to sort them sort themselves out. And I, I don't have any hope whatsoever that, that uh, leveling the playing field is actually going to uh, address the, the, core, the core problems that we've identified. So is that is that a that's a pessimistic take? Well, right, and it's 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 my, it's my takeaway from education, right? I mean, you you can pour uh, you know incredible amounts of money into school and and, and you know double the funding in one in school A versus school B, and you can't even out the achievement scores, right? I mean, there's there's structural problems that are that are far more than architectural, and they're they're far more than than regulatory that that keep our class stratification sort of. But don't you think that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I like about this article, right? That it's like, it doesn't pretend that there's a silver bullet which solves yeah. all problems of inclusion. Like, not even yeah. the ADA. Yeah. The ADA is as silver bullety as you can imagine, right? For, right. For, but it's not the solution to all problems of the exclusion of the disabled, right? Yeah, but, that was not a criticism of Sarah. It was no. a criticism of Christian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. No, but, but, but I want to use that as a, as a chance to talk about what, one of the virtues I see of this paper is that it uncovers... Uh, something which is too easily forgotten, right? Like, how many people are out there uh, in the in the general public talking about how roads and bridges are a barrier to racial harmony, yeah. right, or any other kind of harmony cause, uh, which has been uh, put asunder by exclusion, right? right. And I think uh, one is the answer. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's some other papers that you mentioned that have talked about this sort of thing, right? Sure, but but, um, but, but it's so important, right? Because if you want to make progress, you have to lean in in this direction, in that direction, in this other direction. It's not enough and just very, to have a law. And it's very optimistic to say you can, you can learn and not repeat the same mistake. Like, you can, you can do better next time. Right. And that's a good thing. And I think we can all say that's a great thing. Well, and I think it matters when – so if you know the history that, uh, that I-40 is where it is in Nashville because of – conscious and subconscious racism, then look, I mean, the next time you cite a road there or when you're thinking about realigning I-40 or when you're thinking about doing a big dig in Nashville, like that's going to be a part of the conversation, right? Yeah, and if be. no one's pushing on that, then it's not. And and if it's not, then, you, well, that's the status quo. And so maybe we right. can move the status quo a little bit in order to do X, Y, or Z. But if you know that the reason for that is racism, yeah. then it's like, well, that status quo has no value anymore. Right? Yeah. And you're able, you, it frees you, you up. You say it has no value. I agree it has no value. I just think you have to also be prepared in the spirit of getting ready to have the conversations you're going to need to have that, you know, that at that hearing, 
like one member of that commission is going to call you a race hustler and there and then the sons of confederate architects are going to come testify against you uh for the other side of the issue and that's all fine because that's all just the working out of the issue but yeah. you can't you can't make right. that process disappear Look, i think you and i agree that 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 kind of element will be will come out of the woodwork right i sure. think what we what we may disagree about or you know maybe i'm too optimistic is the strength of that argument at this point in time like look what happened in oklahoma Right, you know, they were immediately expelled. Right, and, and there was. Uh, I, it's not that racism is. You know, I'm not saying racism is over or anything like that. I'm just saying now is the time to apply pressure. You look very. No, the, I, I don't. I, you and I agree about that. Absolutely. Well, then this isn't going to make for very good radio. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you're underestimating the degree to which um, there are people looking for opportunities to. Uh, to preserve the status quo in a very vigorous way, uh, and 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 people for whom there's no mistake of their intentionality, you know, unlike some of the issues we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what, what's the um, yeah? So what's the positive picture, Sarah? So if you if it's true that you know, um, and, and it is true, right, that architecture can draw you can you know, in Sunstein's language, you can nudge behavior with architecture. I'm also I'm a big believer in the idea that. For mo- most of the time, people don't want to make a lot of decisions. They kind of want to do what they feel like they're supposed to do, right? Which is why when I think about redesigning my no- local neighborhood with shared parking and other things, like I think it's important to signal to people that, hey, when you come to Five Points, you're supposed to either walk there, take the bus there, or if you park there, you're supposed to park in one place and kind of walk around, right? And, and you need to signal that with like the way you design your sidewalks and the way you design like a big kind of welcoming arch and everything. Like this is a place to which you come and you walk around, right? And most people, they look at those signals and they kind of do what they're supposed to do. Um, not because they're, you know, automatons, but because they don't want to think about all those things all the time, right? And, and, and they kind of do what people do. Um, but doesn't that, that points out kind of a, a promising story, doesn't it? That um, if you could accomplish all of these bad things through, there are certainly all kinds of great opportunities for which we are paying great opportunity costs now because mm. we're not doing them, right? Uh, have you looked at that? Is there a... I'm looking for the sunnier side of yeah. Sarah here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess part of it is just talking about these things, right? And yeah. the more, because I guess the sort of underlying problem, which we've been talking about, is that people don't recognize these things as regulation. So to the extent people start to see these things for what they are and, and um, understand the reasons that they were created and that, that oftentimes maybe they were intentionally exclusionary or they have the effect of being exclusionary, then we can start having a conversation around, wow, you know, that was a big mistake. How can we avoid that in the future? Um, Do you think that helps though, seeing it? So if, if we, if we are, if we decide that not only is the law, which, um, which sets aside uh, funds for building a road, a regulation, but the choice of like building material is a law. The choice of the particular alignment of the road is a law. Like if all of these things are seen as laws, then aren't kind of the politicians just going to get involved in more of these questions? And is judicial review a good thing? I mm. mean, like right. a lot about law works because people are just kind of able to do things sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Without a lot of due process or, or you know, or uh, uh, public hearings and. You know, I'm trying to be kind of realistic about it, right? That there's a lot of freedom of action that has to occur in order to get, I don't know, I haven't done a deep dive into like why certain parks are really great and why they work really well. But I bet a lot of it is there was one person who had like a vision or a group of people had a vision and they were able to kind of drive that by using that power that they had and uh, without a bunch of 
decision by committee. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's possible. And I think that, and again, it's interesting because what I see is that a lot of the planning literature and Justin and Jesse are both have planning backgrounds. Maybe they can speak to this too, but a lot of the planning literature recognizes this. And so to the extent that it's planners and city engineers that are making these decisions who have read this literature and have, have an understanding of the symbolic and sort of, um, you know, regulatory effect of architecture, you would think they could make good choices. But historically, uh, you know, despite the theory, these decisions were still made. So, and, and again, is that because politics are already injected into it? Um, or is that a negative bias? Like you're looking at all the cases where it didn't work out. Sure. And there's so many things we take for granted, which are actually awesome if they hadn't been no, the way they were. And I think if we that's right. Law, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and when I um, presented this paper over the last year, I definitely got that feedback from some people saying, well, is, this stuff isn't happening anymore. My city's great. We have great discussions about these things. And we, you know, we make inclusive decisions intentionally and, and create inclusive designs. And so, so, right, maybe I was focusing on all the bad stuff that's still around and there is a lot of good stuff happening. And I think that is true to some extent. But I also think we can't ignore the fact that, you know, there's also still... Yeah, Justin and Jesse, I mean, from a pl- is it important not to talk about this stuff sometimes and just let the planners <laughs> and architects do their thing? Um. I mean, I guess one thing that gets talked about in planning school a lot is that, sure, there's a technocratic side to all these decisions, but there's a political side to all these decisions. And I guess I fall somewhere between the two extremes here and that I'm not quite as optimistic. I, I think there are many localities where no one's going to explicitly say we want to keep this locality as white as possible. But I think people are concerned about low income residents. People are concerned about more students in the school system. People are concerned about immigrants. People are concerned about residents who are moving who don't speak English. And I think there are localities that are that are today working to exclude people on all of those and other bases through law, through architecture, through infrastructure. So I don't think that this is a problem of the past. I don't think you can just leave it to no discussion. And I, I guess the other thing I was going to say is that I think in a way, it calls for us to really emphasize making all of these decisions with a strong emphasis on thinking about what the consequences have been in the past, what the consequences will be in the future, and investing in um, remedying this past discrimination. And so I think of a thing like the Big Dig. Of course, it's beautiful, a beautiful park now. Mm-hmm. It was a disaster before, this huge highway. You reconnected the North End in downtown Boston. But of all the places where you're going to spend billions and billions of dollars connecting two neighborhoods, why those two neighborhoods? I mean, downtown Boston was not struggling. The North End, by the time this project started, was a kind of tourist mecca and very high income. Why not invest all of those resources in some other place where the highway cuts off a neighborhood in, in Dorchester or actually build the the subway line in Boston that was supposed to be built, for which now they have the silver line, which is really just a bus because they never put up the money to actually connect a lot of these neighborhoods with real functional public Yeah, but aren't those, like, aren't those areas, like, the decision whether to do the big dig, that one especially, like, in downtown Boston or somewhere else, that, that is a decision which is exposed to politics right now, right? Which right. is heavily debated, right? Yes. And which is subject to lawsuits. Like, yes. So what if, what if we had, like, Sarah's, let's just call this Sarah's Law. Okay. I don't see why we shouldn't do that. <laughs> Sarah's Law, which is the environmental impact statement of architectural exclusion, right? Okay. Let's suppose we had this thing, right? And um, what I'm wondering is, would like I can see how that would like fend off some unthinking exclusions that happen. Uh, like that, I could see how that would spark in those cases. But I, what I'm wondering is, like from a, a professional planner or designer point of view, would that kind of tie your hands to do things which are actually 
good things in terms of urban design, which if, if exposed to politics and everything else, would, would not get done. You know what I mean? So the examples you just gave are all examples where politics may have delivered a suboptimal answer and where scrutiny may have delivered a suboptimal answer. And, you know, so in other words, how much we d- trust the kind of technocratic designers to make the best of whatever situation the politicians have approved. You know? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, um, but I was I was trying to think about this in a more optimistic light, <laughs> um, which is, uh, um, and I do think there's something to what Christian's saying of, of if we can do so much harm with architecture, hopefully we can also do a lot of good with architecture, right? So perhaps we just need to take the lesson from it is that there are a lot of ways that we can design our communities um, that might not even be that obvious to us that are doing a lot of good here or that could do good going forward. And it was interesting that Justin said, uh, what you describe planning as being technocratic and political. And what I thought you left out is creative. And, and this might betray our slightly different backgrounds and mine being more um, um, related to landscape architecture. But, you know, if you think about these beautiful parks and things or things that are working, often there was a creative person behind that who helped kind of make that um, come about. And that is, that's hard to evaluate in our architectural exclusion impact report. Uh, but but if it's like other impact report laws, right, it doesn't actually force you to do anything. Right. It just forces you to think about think, all these things. Talk about it. Talk about that. Think about it. And then try and make like the and creative defend, decision. And defend lawsuits for like uh, yeah, two decades. Right. Yeah. It's a big project, Slow down project, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, that's a big deal, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I, I think that's a good point. That, that The hope is that planning and design and then that a law like this could be generative of more creative and positive solutions that a little more pressure could lead us to better outcomes. One question I had coming back to this question about environmental impact statements or social impact statements, social, economic, racial justice impact statements, is exactly that. It seems like a lot of times those are as influenced by political power as anything else. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I mean, obviously, disparate impacts may not be with us for much longer given the inclusive communities project versus Texas case. But if, if we, if it is, if it does continue to be viable, is that, is the, why isn't that a better tool? Cause it seems like there's a, there's, I know it's complicated, but at least it seems like there's somewhat clearer metrics than an environmental or social impact statement. Yeah. If that's the, if the one concern here is with exclusion, and that exclusion could be remedied by thinking harder about the problem, then that would seem the better solution. If exclusion is like one of the bad things that happens because we don't think about the problem, then maybe the answer is thinking harder about the problem. But of course, that runs into kind of what you're alluding to, which is the public choice critique of Madisonian democracy, right? The idea that <laughs> the idea that with if we have a clear process and people speak clearly, then the public interest always gets done because, you know, the... Good ideas fight the bad. And the public choices critique is actually the more process you have, the harder you make it for things which are broadly and diffusely good to actually get through. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got sharp interests who don't want it, they will take advantage of those processes, yeah. right? And so this is the somewhat – talk about pessimistic. The pessimistic story <laughs> that like American democracy is a failure at its root right away, right? But um, – which goes too far. But, but you, you know the critique. Everybody here is familiar mm-hmm. with the critique. Um, so why does this not just set up that kind of public choice problem that, that, that I think Justin alludes to, right? That if you, if you do that, all you do is you set up another opportunity for people to, to do bad stuff. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's a definite possibility. You're not supposed and, to say that. So, sorry, no, <laughs> no, everything's no, but I, I, I mean, I. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to have the answer, you know that you know that this is going to be. Here's how it's all going to be good, and no, and I, you know, I think again, I, I feel like in writing this paper, I really just wanted to explore this as almost to uncover it and to talk about it. And I don't know that I have a great solution. You know, I, I think I admit as much. I think we there are some possibilities that we could pursue, but. I don't know that they'll solve our problems. Um, and I don't know that they're politically feasible. Here's another uh, way of asking so, it. Okay. Like, if you could do one thing, would you adopt Sarah's law, which is the is NEPA, right? Maybe we should have S-A-R-A-H, you know, call it the shaping architectural, you know. Keep going, keep re, going. Re, 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 stuff. Rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I'm, you know, um, <laughs> right. Sarah's Law, which is the EIS for, for this stuff. Like, if you could do that, or you could ensure norms of inclusion in history are taught in um, architecture and engineering schools. Right? Which one of those? Which I mean, of those is they? most important? I think they already are, and I think it hasn't done enough. So. Well, no, I, I mean, not in engineering. Well, I don't, who's making these? I mean, you guys, the professionals, tell me who's making. <laughs> you know, I guess the politicians choose a site, right? But but they're choosing among plans which are presented to them by engineers and architects for the most part, right? Do I have the professional lineup there correct? And um, people are nodding, by the way. This is, these are not. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think they're just being polite to me. It's, I don't know what that one. it's an iterative process. Yeah. It depends on the locality, mm-hmm. what the different roles that different political actors have. Um, but yes. Yeah, and, and so um, how much of the, let's call it the normative education, like the historical education, political education, the sensitivity to uh, um, uh, racial divides in communities, how, how much of that is actually taught in the schools that train people who are deeply involved in that iteration? Do you, do you guys know? Depends which classes you take, which school you go to. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it, it's... But, but do you agree with me? I mean, what, well, let me ask you guys, what would you do? I mean, it, would you take Sarah's Law or would you invest those resources into... Uh... I think if you take Sarah's Law, you force the second. Yeah. Right. So if if it you is because you teach then you, you teach the law in the planning school. Right. Right. So for all the planning schools that hadn't been talking about that, they now are talking about it because they have to train their planners on right. how to and their environmental consultants and everybody on how to you know assess because they want their things. graduates to be able to participate in that absolutely, process absolutely. as opposed to being fenced out of it completely. Right. Right. Oh, and, I can't speak to that issue. Well, that issue is legally required. Right. Yeah. And so, again, I, I feel like a lot of my research showed that. Even to the extent planners know this stuff, it's not making its way into the the decisions that happen on the ground. So again, to the extent there's a law forcing your hand, I think the outcomes will be more assured. So Robin Malloy was talking about he's um, I can't remember if he lives in the town of Syracuse or some other suburb in New York, and he is uh, in the general plan. He's on the planning board, and they have some uh, uh, they have to follow a principle of sustainability. So what he did is get on the committee that put together the definition of sustainability, and he threw all this stuff in there. So it's not just environmental consciousness. It's also, you know, accessibility. It's also walkability. It's, you know, social, economic, you know, stuff like that. And so now every time they're going through, um, when he's at the board meetings and every time they're going through a decision that he thinks they're not talking about these things, he's like, oh, oh, remember, we have to incorporate the principles of sustainability into everything. (laughs) Which are quite broad. (laughs) And we define sustainability to mean, like, think about all this stuff that Mm -hmm. would be, like, in Sarah's Law and elsewhere. So you see people 
already trying to incorporate those principles, but they're perhaps because we don't have the comprehensive approach. It's like kind of happening here and there in communities. You know, I do think planners and are are aware of it and are trying to work on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, we can say what we will about NEPA and how successful it's been, but to the extent you know the the mini NEPAs that some states have adopted, California and New York specifically, which actually have the mitigation requirements. If if Sarah's law had you know, some sort of requirement, not just to consider these things, but to actually, um, you know, mitigate any negative effects or to the extent a project was going to have uh, exclusionary impacts to to mitigate them to levels of non-exclusion or to make other areas inclusionary, uh, then we actually see effects on the ground, not just discussions of those effects. Doesn't New York's NEPA already have it? Secra, yeah, Secra in New York and Sequa in California. California's is much stronger. No, I mean, not just the mitigation thing, but uh, consideration of social consequences. Isn't there room in there to do this? Yeah, Yeah. that's what they were just referring to. Yeah, yeah, but have they, but there's also, there are two dimensions to this. Like some NEPAs, you just have to study it and then you can do whatever you want and and others require you to do something. And some say just environmental effects and others say environmental plus, right? And, And those two jurisdictions have both of those two things, right? The mitigation requirement and consideration not just environmental but also social Some social you have to mitigate all of it that's what I, I'm right sure. i can't remember the way that in I, new york i don't new know york, about new york sure. I, I only work in, in california, california you do but, but i can't remember in california whether you had the social things i'm not sure if there's you, one jurisdiction you know, that has did, both but it wasn't as strong as the in, at least to the extent like when we worked with it it was easier to so is it's much issues. fuzzier right yeah. like it's much easier to be like you have to have a two-to-one mitigation for farmland and it's harder right. to be like Right, or add another, you know, a turning lane or another stoplight is much more... And and again, this goes back to the earlier point you were making, which is how do we define the exclusionary effects of an infrastructural decision? Right. It's much less clear than doing a traffic study where we see the number of cars, uh, the level of service that's been affected. It would get more clear as we did more of it. Yeah. Like, as we had more experience, people would develop new techniques, Mm -hmm. new rubrics, new conceptual approaches. I mean, that's another place where creativity can come into it, not just in the creativity of designing a particular... Uh, space, but a, a, a whole creative way of thinking about the, a general set of issues. It would, it would also force this political question, which is at the heart of a lot of these things, which is uh, that the projection about the exclusive effect is filtered through private choices. Right? You build this thing, and the reason there's going to be exclusion is because people actually want to live here or there, and the effects of that will be exclusion, right? And then the question is, politically, should we design in a way shapes private choices in a different way right and that you have a whole like that's a deep political divide where some people say anything filtered through private you see this in the school voucher context anything filtered through private choices is like per se fine right and i basically wrote a whole article i don't believe that right but 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 the upshot is that like you're going to push that well i don't know if you will it depends on how much visibility sarah's law gets but (laughs) has anybody sued over this though I mean, has anybody sued over like a, a freeway exit or a cloverleaf or something like that on grounds that it would be racially exclusive in in, in an EIS context, not in an oh. protection context? Um, do you know? I don't know, actually. Yeah, we get a listener to tell us. Okay. That's why we do this show. Great. Yeah, a bunch of, this is America's faculty colloquium. I don't know if you knew this or not. <laughs> and, and, and out there, we've got America's research assistants. Perfect. We're just eager to... Yeah. It, no, America, like I've said before, did not actually tell us they wanted a faculty colloquium. <laughs> um, but we're going to do it. It doesn't anyway. mean they don't need one. Do, it doesn't. doesn't at all. Like, they didn't know that we needed research on this, but now they do. Yeah. So we're going to turn. They've got Kraken. Paul, did you have anything to add? I wanted to say something optimistic against my better judgment. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that is, I we have it. had, right, and, and I hate to use the cyberspace word again with Christian in the room, but, you know, <laughs> we have recently had a good cyberspace architecture decision in favor of net neutrality, right? So this, yeah. this, things could have gone horribly wrong, and we actually had deliberation, uh, you know, in the in the cyberspace space of the kind that we would like to see in the physical architecture space, right? Uh, equal access, open access, uh, free flow, and, uh, and uh, rich people not winning. So maybe there is some minor hope, but I'm still going to go home and drink tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm struck about what you said about uh, Baltimore again. Like this seems like a moment. Like if some, if enough people knew, like what your story about Baltimore in here and what's happening right now, that this is that this that, that is very powerful at this moment in time. I, I just have this abiding sense that that people would see it. It's it's like you know it's like waking up and seeing your city in a new way mm-hmm. when you see that it exists the way that it does. Because of you know some people of goodwill who made bad decisions, some people of goodwill who made good decisions, and some people of bad will who did things for racist reasons, right? And that's I'm living in this, right? This is uh, you, you know. You think people don't know that? I don't. I I really think that um, this goes back to you know this, this is another another David Foster Wallace uh, um, uh, reference for uh, um, for our listener who wanted more of those. Remember this, Joe? <laughs> I do. Um, but. Like a lot of people don't, right? You know, and a lot, I would say all of us, almost all the time with respect to almost all things, don't recognize that this is water. You know, this is the story about the fish and this is water, right? And they don't, you don't know that you're living in air. Like you just take all this stuff for granted. Right. And so your city, its shape, the fact that there are these roads, the fact that you could do different things, the fact that, you know what? I live two miles from school. I could bike. I don't have to, but everybody's driving their cars, right? I mean, that's a choice you can make, which is different that you don't, you just don't see until you see it as a possibility. And that's just one example. But, like, everything could be different. And you don't see that until you see why things are the way that they are. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I don't I, know if I'm making any sense. But, yeah. but, yes. but I, I, you know, the sort of, I think, a great example um, that I, I mentioned in the paper is, you know, there's a lot of now these benches that have yeah. armrests. Right? Yeah. So it's like a three-seat bench. Right, Right, exactly. And when you when you see it, you're like, oh, look, it's chairs instead of a traditional bench. You know, it's three chairs stuck together. But right, it's to prevent people from laying down on the benches in the parks. And it's again, these are intentional decisions that we look at and think these are just which really prove the degree to which there is so much chosenness shot through all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, and that that can be turned into a you know chosenness for positive things instead of for negative. So instead of you know b- coming up with new ways to put spikes in corners and and buildings in New York so that people can't sleep in them, which they do. I mean, there's tons of this stuff. Uh, um, why not actually think about having a more humanistic objective? That would be Joe's law. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I like that. Um, I feel like uh, so. This is this is the weekend that we've got a conference here, which is why we have all these wonderful people at Oral Argument World Headquarters yes. tonight. And um, but there are so many great things to do in Athens. I feel like it's time to turn people loose. Okay, <laughs> uh, is is now a good time? Do we sure. have last? Do we have any last comments? Is there something that we that we haven't said that that must be? I mean, there's lots we haven't said, which will be you know. We may get to by your fifth appearance on the show. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we'll save it. We'll save it. No. And all of our new friends now. Yes. Like everybody has to be back. So, um, yeah, this has been great. Uh, Fantastic. Do you have anything else, Joe? Anybody have anything else? I don't. This has been fun. Thanks for having this us to the headquarters. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We'll do it again. <laughs>
Yay. Thank you.